The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. All right, we're underway. This is Glenn Lowry. You have tuned into The Glenn Show. Glenn Show is sponsored by the Manhattan Institute, where I'm John Paulson, Senior Fellow, and I'm with my bi-weekly conversation partner, John McWhorter of Columbia University and the New York Times. And our special guest this week is Mark Goldblatt, uh, who's author of the book, I Feel, Therefore I Am, The Triumph of Woke Subjectivism. And uh, we're going to be talking about that. As it turns out, John and Mark are old friends. So John is going to take the chair of this conversation, but I will be chiming in as I'm moved by the spirit. So I'll turn it over to John. Hey, Mark. Hey. <laughs> you have written um, a really interesting book. And it's a book that um, is going to make a lot of people mad. And frankly, it's a book that's going to make a lot of people madder than they should be. And I just want to lay out what the basic premise is and ask you to um, give a specific example or two of what is meant by what is actually. The, ba- the back jacket copy of this book is better than on most books. They, whoever did this, maybe, maybe it was you, but somebody really. It was me. <laughs> okay. I suspect it was me. The summary of the book is, is this. Um, this works perfectly. So, um, people often grouped under the umbrella term woke share more than a perpetual sense of grievance and attraction to street theater and an intense dislike of straight white guys who drink cheap beer and wear their baseball caps backward. <laughs> they share a devotion to subjectivism. Their gathering principle is the idea that subjective belief if it's heartfelt, trumps whatever objective, verifiable evidence may be brought against it. For these social justice warriors, if you sincerely and passionately believe an injustice is being done, then the effort to determine whether that belief corresponds with reality is a further injustice. So, this sounds like people who are clinically insane, and yet you're not referring to people who are clinically insane. They are thoroughly sane, usually highly intelligent. How, what is, what are these people? What, what, what do they do? Well, I think, you know, um, a couple of weeks ago, there was a woman, a conservative author who was out on um, a book tour about wokeism and who was asked to define wokeism and it just stumped her. And so I've been working on a generous definition of wokeism. I, I want to give the the people who advocate it the benefit of the doubt insofar as I can. And I think the wokeism in generous terms is a cluster of advocacy positions that are designed to um, promote an understanding of and equity for historically marginalized people historically marginalized communities. And I think on that level, it's, it's impossible to object to it. It's the methodology by which that promotion 
precedes that is the problem with wokeism because wokeism is a religion. I completely agree with you on that. Um, the first time I heard it referred to that way, I think, was Andrew Sullivan talking about the Great Awakening, which I think it sets it in its past well. I think that's Iglesias who came up with that, but now everybody— It could, it could very well be. The first that's time right. I heard it was with Andrew Sullivan. Yeah. Um, but the, fundamentally, the methodology employed by the woke it is a um, sort of direct assault on— the Enlightenment values of uh, rational inquiry, socio-religious tolerance, and individual rights. Um, doing that um, puts it in a kind of position of um, bullying, uh, for lack of a for lack of a better term. Um, when you have decided that reason, that um, evidence objective evidence and um, rational inquiry and standard modes of logic are not decisive in public discourse, then you are in a position of, I'm more powerful than you are, therefore I can take what I believe to be true and impose it upon you. And I think that that's the sort of underside of wokeism. That's the problematic side far more problematic side. Folks, we're talking to um, Mark Goldblatt, who teaches at the Fashion Institute of Technology, has written so many books it's embarrassing, and has written for every media organ in the business. Notice I say that as if this is a TV show 40 years ago where somebody <laughs> might be just doing it. Well, I'm appearing here with the supporting cast of the Bill Maher show now, so I feel, <laughs> I feel honored about that. I just like the idea of pacing it that way. But Mark, this is the thing. Why are these people fighting the Enlightenment? Who does this? What makes them feel like they're on the side of the angels, these, these parishioners, which is indeed what they are? Why are they yeah. doing this? I think um, because arguing on the basis of empirical evidence and logic is hard. And your side will not win if you don't have the best evidence and if you don't have a coherent logical approach. On the other hand, if sentiment is raised as a methodology to counter um, empirical evidence, and standard logical modes, then anybody can play. And more importantly, uh, I think what that position, what the wokest position does, is it changes the nature of the search for truth. That is, it, it posits that the identity of the person making a truth claim is not only influences, but um, can guarantee the truth of the claim itself, that the truth value of a proposition is related to or a function of the identity of the speaker who makes the claim. But, mm -hmm. and I'm going to do the Glenn thing here. Yeah. I'm going to play the role of that kind of person. What mm -hmm. about my felt experience? I'm sitting here walking around behind my own eyes with my own memories, and I have felt the slings and arrows of outrageous microaggression, and I have listened to my, my forebears talking about experiences they had, 
And so in a very essential way, I am what I feel because it would be unempirical for you to tell me that my feelings were not valid, especially since you haven't walked behind these eyes. You haven't been within this body and felt what I felt. And so couldn't we say, Mark, that this is an advance on cold-hearted enlightenment thinking, that I have my own take on things based on what I have seen, and you can't fully understand it because you're not walking around behind my eyes. And you might even, even if it's understandable, you might have a certain resistance to understanding what it's like to walk around behind my eyes because you're white and you want to resist the guilt that might ensue if you acknowledge the sorts of things which I experience and see fully. Yeah, I think that's a perfect summary of the of the counter argument. And here's what I would here's how I would respond to that because it has been brought up. Um, if you tell me that there have been, I don't know, six violent crimes on your block over the last year, I have no basis from which to doubt that. Uh, if, you, if you make that claim, because I haven't been on your block, I, I haven't been tracking these kind of things, and just in conversational goodwill, I'd be inclined to accept it. On the other hand, if you go beyond the observation level and you start to interpret and analyze your experience, then I think it is the right of, of your interlocutor to begin to question that. So that if you say, well, there have been six violent crimes in my neighborhood and the police would not stand for that if my neighborhood were a different kind of neighborhood, that I think gets beyond just you are speaking from your experience. It, it involves you stepping out of your experience and making a comment on the world which may not be justified on the basis of what you're seeing. In some ways, being up close and personal to six, to six violent crimes may make you a worse analyst of the causes and effects of it than uh, somebody who's looking at it from the outside. And again, the reason that's, in it, that's a, um, and a direct assault on the Enlightenment intellectual tradition is you want to step outside of your subjectivity insofar as you can in order to arrive at um, solutions to collective problems. And I think that that is obviated by a woke position. One of the most disturbing aspects of all of this is what I can tell people like this think, which is that it's an advance to suppose that their subjectivity is a kind of objectivity, that it's as yeah. empirically unassailable as pure objectivity, and that actually pure objectivity is something wrong, something that yeah. certain Northern and Western European white people came up with and is yesterday's way of analyzing things. That is a scary thing to see so many people pretending to believe. There are the hyper-woke who really believe it and can't think beyond yeah. it. Then the rest of us are supposed to pretend to believe it. Yeah, That's but it's the, yeah, but it's the, you face the dilemma of the chess player who won't come to the board in that case. Because if I point out to you that um, say, making, saying that subjectivity is a kind of objectivity, um, because it's true to me, if 
I say to you that that's self-negating, that that's a contradictory position because you're making an objective claim about your subjective perceptions. Um, that's devastating from the point of view of the Enlightenment overview of if I have a contradiction in my argument, I must abandon that position. But if you premise that pointing out a contradiction is not something that undermines an argument or, or a position, then there's no way to go from there except ridicule. There's a, I can ridicule that position, but I can't defeat it if you're going to say, well, I'm contradicting myself, but so what? And that, by the way, comes straight out of postmodernism. It's really interesting to um, look at the sources of woke movement, and they are academic sources, um, whether it's critical race theory or the Me Too movement or uh, transgender recognition. They all have a, a, a wide swath of influences from the postmodern, postmodernist critical world. And the postmodernist critical world is one that wants to, to take the horrific verb, deconstruct all hierarchies, including the hierarchy that places logic and evidence above subjective feelings. But again, you're, you're staking out a, an invincible position if you're on the woke side here, because there's no way to get at it once you've said... Um, the expectation of empirical evidence and logic is itself a tool of oppression and white supremacy. I have a question. Yeah. yeah. Why is this departure from objective and rational enlightenment grounded reason uh, influenced deliberation undertaken on behalf of, quote, historically marginalized groups, close quote, as opposed to, let's just say, the working class. The, you, you that's, a very, that's a very good question. Um, I think it has to do with the, the ease with which historical grievances are mobilized. And I think it's harder to mobilize people who are separated by class because there are so many other things that bind them together, like interest in music, interest in sports. The broad popular culture is embraced by both the upper class and the working class. Uh, racial divisions, because they are so historically fraught, have tended to divide people in a more dramatic way and in a way that renders ethnic groups more insular, I think, than, um, than class structures do. Because class structures just have so many, so many cross sections by which you, you can enter and leave. And then there's also, I think, playing into it the sense that, especially black people, brown people in general, but especially black people have a certain channel on spiritual truths that go up and beyond strict old logic that there's something deep about us, that there is a general truth that B.B. King has that goes beyond anything Richard Feynman could have told us. That sort of thing. <laughs> and I think there's some of that in it too. And so, yeah, but that's interesting. Why is it that we don't think of working class people as having a different and more valid experience than the coddled person in Greenwich, Connecticut? And yeah, that's- Well, I think, I do think that there is- 
partly because the African-American tradition in, in um, certainly in this hemisphere, has been um, so deeply rooted in religious sentiment. Yes. I think there is a, a natural gravity towards the woke positions that are being advocated uh, because it's, it's, in a sense, an extension of that spirituality. If you ask, if you ask me, like, what connection does Al Sharpton have to um, the continent, the the sub-Saharan Africa? I would say none. But if you if you took me and Al Sharpton and dropped us off in sub-Saharan Africa, (laughs) he's not going to have any more insight into what's going on there than I do. As a matter of fact, we're going to be two old guys from New York City completely (laughs) lost. Um, But because of the the fraught history of race in the United States, there is a a kind of mysticism that, that accrues within the community that says, if... If I'm black, I have a natural understanding of things coming out of my African roots that are imperceptible to people who who don't have those roots. And if you had those roots, you would see what I see in terms of police brutality, uh, even though the numbers may not be there empirically, uh, you would understand what I understand. And there really is no counter to that from the outside. I mean, there's there's no rational counter to it. Now, the reason I asked that question about class is because, and I wonder if you'd agree with this, Mark, it, yeah. there's something fragile, it feels to me, about this tyranny of subjectivism. It doesn't have a political grounding that's solid, it seems to me. It's, it's depending on sentiment and not as much on the material interest that will bring majorities to the ballot box. I mean, you, you mentioned the bullying. It dares people. It dares people to disagree. It, it, it's, a, it's a regime in which if I say, you observed uh, as I uh, listened to one of your interviews about uh, the Kavanaugh nomination and the claims of Christine Blasey Ford and the fact that there was no actual objective evidence that they'd ever even been in the same room together. Let alone that yeah. he had uh, that he had assaulted her, uh, and yet in the heat of that moment, to come out and make that point would have labeled you as a person on the wrong side of history, as a as a person who was against the Me Too, as a bad person, as a Trump supporter, or something like that. So, so there's this. Yeah. There's, it seems to me there's this kind of bluffing. I, you know, uh, have formulated this uh, argument in other contexts before, but I think people are daring you to disagree with them, daring you to go to the evidence. Um, and it, it, it doesn't seem to me that that could, that that could hold, that, that you could sustain a political regime in which it would uh, amplify and reinforce uh, uh, these, uh, these tendencies, that there would be backlash uh, in, in due course. Are we going to not see that in fullness of time with respect to the transgender issue, for example, that people are going to get... Just mm-hmm. get fed up. I'll stop. But, you know, get fed up with being told stuff that their lying eyes is telling them is not true. <laughs> yeah, it's with and I did write about the uh, Kavanaugh Ford controversy, which to my yeah. mind was a low point of American journalism. Yeah. 
And, um, and there, it is verifiably true that there is no piece of objective evidence Mark, to demonstrate. In, interrupting just briefly. Sure. Wasn't there, though, that she had told her husband and he attested that yeah. he had heard, and then there was a friend of hers. Didn't that count as evidence? Because some people are going to remember that on this show, Glenn and I disagreed yeah. about the Kavanaugh. Yeah. The, um, Christine Blasey Ford told her husband about it years, decades after the alleged event happened. And she also told her uh, mar marriage counselor about it uh, without naming Kavanaugh by name. But what that establishes is that she's sincere in the belief. It doesn't establish the truth of the belief. The fact that those kind of like therapist notes can be admitted in evidence in a trial um, is, is meant to overcome the possibility that the claimant is intentionally lying. I don't think that Christine Blasey Ford is intentionally lying, although her, her lawyer did slip up years, a couple of years later and say that was one of the reasons we brought the charges against Kavanaugh, because we knew what he was going to do in the abortion debate. But um, you, when you look to things like testimony to others, um, uh, including a, uh, somebody with a therapist license. What you're doing is validating the sincerity of the claim. You're not validating the content of the claim. And as far as objective evidence goes, there, even though Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford had mutual friends, there has yet to be any piece of verifiable evidence that the two of them have ever been in the same place at the same time. It just doesn't exist. And it's not like journalists haven't been looking for that, you know, some sort of... Well, Mark, what, what yeah. is a genuine question? Given yeah. the, the nature of technology in the era, yeah. what realistically would it be given that it wasn't common that you took out a cassette recorder and like yeah. video recorders were very expensive? You mean like something somebody would have written in a diary entry or something yeah, like that? Yeah, or else just somebody, remember, she provided a list of five witnesses to the event, all of which have denied that the event took place, inclu including one of them, Leland Kaiser, who is uh, Christine Blasey Ford's lifelong friend, who at first said, look, I just have no memory of it, and who has since then taken an even stronger stand and said, look, her version of events just doesn't make sense. Because it would have placed Leland Kaiser, who is supposedly also at this rape party uh, that Kavanaugh and his friends were, were involved in. Uh, if Christine Blasey Ford's um, story were true, Leland Kaiser, after Christine Blasey Ford left the party, having been assaulted and somehow magicked her way home over a space of like 15 to 20 miles, if you accept all of that, then Leland Kaiser herself would have been left alone in a house with like a, a group of rapey boys. And you'd think that would be something you'd remember. And she just at first said she had no memory of it. Afterwards, she said, look, her account just doesn't make sense. Now, I did and not so, mean I did not mean to revive the debate about uh, well, her sorry. allegations. Well, no, this is useful in a way because I must yeah. talk about faith and being closed to truth because there's certain ways that you're used to seeing things. 
I find it very, very hard to imagine that she was lying about that based on, you know, I'm the same age as them. Yeah. I know the sorts of things that happened. And, you know, people didn't take as many photographs and, you know, liquor clouds memories. It's so hard for me to imagine that she's misremembering and that he's not lying. But yeah. I'm listening to these facts. Yeah. Well, about. you have to think of it this way. Uh, and this uh, knowledge, uh, Christine Blasey Ford claims to know that this happened. But a knowledge claim is a very specific claim. Knowledge is adequately justified true belief. That's the standard definition of it. She has a belief. And it may very well be an unfalsifiable belief because it may be deeply rooted in her psychology that she, she holds that this happened and that Brett Kavanaugh was the perpetrator. I don't doubt the sincerity. I honestly don't doubt the sincerity of it. But is her belief true? And logically, we have reasons to question it. Like, how did she get home when she lived all of these miles away? And we're talking, you know, obviously decades before you can call an Uber, before there's a se- such a thing as a cell phone. Um, so it's not, a, the question of whether it's true is up in the air, but it's certainly not adequately justified. As a matter of fact, all the objective evidence points in the other direction. And the, the woke counter to that is, well, the objective evidence points in the other direction, but the expectation that she would have, that she would produce objective evidence to support what she, to support her accusation is itself a kind of um, re-victimization. But, and that's what runs you, you remember, John, you asked, why would she lie? And I said, I don't have to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's it. The burden of proof in any formal hearing, not just in any <laughs> court trial, is on the accuser. And I don't think Christine Blasey Ford is even in the neighborhood of meeting that burden of proof. Now, see, I get all of this. I'm not, this is not bothering me. Mm-hmm. It is, however, it is, it does not fit with what's in my belly. And why this is a teaching moment is because imagine this times 10. This is Mm -hmm. these woke people where it's just a whole lot of other things that they can only hear the way I'm hearing this and they're mad. And that means that you can't, you can't get through. You just, Mm -hmm. you cannot get through to a person like that. But Mark, there's another thing in the book Mm -hmm. where I, um, I don't completely see why you've got such a bee in your bonnet about it. And you can explain, which is that, um, we are being encouraged to reform our sense of, and yes, audience, this is for the first time, I'm going <laughs> to go here. We are supposed to reform our sense of what man and a woman are. And I think any idiot knows that there is a biological business with the chromosomes. Nobody's going to deny that. Anybody who denies that belongs in an asylum. Nobody denies that. But the idea is that that's not enough and that we need to be more creative in how we conceive of what a man and a woman are. For you, this is also about denial of reality. Please, mm-hmm. please explain. Well, the human beings are binary. I mean, they're, by sexual classification, they simply are binary. That's true of all mammals. Um, all mammals Chemically. have... Right. You know, a male gamete and a female gamete right. and 
you know, female gametes, the ovum, the male gametes, the sperm. That's how they reproduce. Um, any examination of your genome, if you find a genetic researcher and you sort of put him up to a polygraph, he'll tell you this. He can look at your genome and tell you with 100% accuracy whether you are biologically male or female. It's not, there are chromosomal abnormalities, um, but, but those chromosomal, yeah, right. yeah, it's a, it's a side issue. Um, and even the woke themselves don't quite believe that it proves what they, what they indicate often in debate uh, it proves. That is, if, if something like um, intersex, abnormal, which is a birth defect, if something like that proved that there were more than two sexual classifications for human beings, um, then the next question would be, well, is that the test for transgenderism? And nobody I've thinks never that. met, yeah, I've never right. met one who would say, no, it has to yep. be a falsi- an unfalsifiable claim. Um, it has to be the equivalent of a sex soul. That is, your soul has a sex. Um, and that if that belies the way in which your body came out, then you have every right to substitute your gender identity for your biological, your sexual this classification. Is why, That's it. why is that such a denial of reality? This is, what I, this is where I don't completely understand the, the argument. Why can't your soul be different from what you were born as? Well, it it if you believe in a soul, and and I'm inclined to well, that well, not a soul. Yeah. Well, go ahead, go ahead. But, yeah, if there's a kind of mystical element in you that we now have been trained to call gender, that's different from your sexual classification. Right. I have no objection to that to that state of things. I, if you, if you want to argue that, that's fine, but. The claim made by transgender advocates is that your gender identity should be able to overrule your sexual classification, should be able to, in effect, exit out. And you should be able to proceed through your life as though you were something other than you observably, provably are. In the bathroom and in sports. In particular. Yeah, I, um, sports is a little bit more problematic for me. Um, bathrooms, I think you can build in accommodations. And I, I also want to make clear that in arguing against the position, the intellectual positions advocated by transgender activists, um, I don't want to diminish the humanity of people who, who feel themselves to be transgendered. They come, and this comes out of the Enlightenment, they come with a full, you know, holster, which is a terrible metaphor now that I'm thinking about it. But they come with a, a full round of human and civil rights that should be respected and um, I would hope are respected by all decent people. Um, the place where I draw the line, though, is their claims to alter the way other people view them and in effect embrace a falsehood. And you run into, you do run into problems with this that go beyond just, you know, what rights do transgender people have? For example, the National 
Human Genome Research Institute, which is a government research institute, uh, says on its website that the difference between um, identical twins and fraternal twins is that identical twins are always the same sex. If you take the claims of transgender people seriously, if you take them literally, that statement has to be false. And are you going to tell the guys in the lab coats or should I? I mean, that you lose the truth value of other things if you accept something that is demonstrably false as true because a sympathetic group of people wants it to be true. And you, you, you can go about this in a number of different ways. You can say one characteristic of mammals is that only the female of the species bears children. Human beings are mammals. Therefore, only female human beings can bear children. Well, that's belied by the headlines that you see in established media about trans people who are called transgender men bearing children. But a transgender man is a woman. I mean, simply as a matter of, of if language can convey truth, a transgender man is a woman. So no you, language no has to track it that way. Like I think yeah. all people know that only people born with how does it go? Two X chromosomes can can give birth. That's yeah. just the way it is. But then we have this 2.0 version of how mm -hmm. people consider themselves in a modern society, such that people who have two X chromosomes need not be referred to with the label woman anymore. We're going to change yeah. that. Why is that so wrong? Well, language evolves, and I certainly don't have to tell you that. Um, but it doesn't specifically evolve in order to render what's true false or what's false true. For example, we don't redefine the word flat to be round in order not to hurt the feelings of the members of the Flat Earth Society. They are The Flat Earth Society gathers around a demonstrably false proposition that the earth is flat. If you, I suppose you could redefine flat and round or make them interchangeable to make them, to make their beliefs true. But that changes the nature of, of the debate. And it does it in such a way that it can't be pursued any farther by rational inquiry. And that, that's the problem. You can't, if you're going to have debates, if you're going to have intellectual debates, you can't switch on and switch off the rules of thought, the logics, the um, law of identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle, and causality. Those are, those are the sine qua nuns of rational thought. And if you apply them to the issues that most concern the woke, you are, in their minds anyway, oppressing them. How did you choose which internet service provider to use? The sad thing is, most of us have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve. They use this monopoly power to take advantage of customers. Data caps, streaming throttles, the list goes on. But worst of all, many ISPs 
log your internet activity and sell that data to other big tech companies or advertisers. To prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all of my devices with ExpressVPN. So what is ExpressVPN? It's a simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP cannot see any of your activity. Just think about how much of your life is on the internet. I know a lot of mine is. I do my business there. I do my entertainment there. I communicate with my intimate friends there. Sadly, the list of people I've messaged, sites I've visited, and videos I've watched get tracked by giant tech companies if I don't protect myself. And those companies can sell my information for a profit. They can do the same thing to you. That's the reason I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your internet service provider. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. That's exactly what I do. I do it with my smartphone. I do it with my laptop everywhere I go. And I do it with my desktop at home when I'm doing my work and when I'm entertaining myself. I love the privacy that ExpressVPN provides me. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by Business Insider and by The Verge. So stop handing over your personal data to an internet service provider and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN that I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash Glenn. That's expressvpn.com slash Glenn to get three extra months for free. Go to expressvpn.com slash Glenn right now to learn more. It, it seems to me okay the crux, oh, go ahead, crux of the matter is the requirement that we all sign on to yes. the subjective belief. Not the sincerity of the subjective belief, not, not the decency of the people who hold the subjective belief, but the imposition on the rest of us to affirm the subjective belief to the point where, oh, I don't know, Someone in a confirmation hearing to take a seat on the Supreme Court when asked to define a woman begs away from the question. Yeah. <laughs> well, why, why is she doing that? Uh, because it's a political act to respond yeah. honestly to that question. And one wants not to give offense to the political consensus behind the, I'm going to say it, false assertion that someone with uh, two X's is a man or someone with an X and a Y is a woman. So, again, I just reiterate my concern. There's going to be hell to pay down the road politically if you keep doing this. Because yeah. the guy that's sitting drinking that uh, beer uh, in that uh, diner somewhere uh, is going to be driven away from the progressive uh, side of the political spectrum into the arms of the reactionaries, the uh, governors of Florida and the uh, former presidents of the United States who would be president yeah. again 
by this uh, imposition, this this coercion, uh, this bullying to insist that I don't believe what my lion eyes are telling me. Yeah, well, I think that that, uh, now I should confess I'm not a fan of the 44th president of the United States. Voldemort. Um, yeah, in, if you want to say to Trump, no, you objectively did not win the 2020 election. And his response to you is, I know it in my guts that I won. There is no counter to that argument any more than there is a counter to somebody saying, look, I know what my genome says. I know what my birth certificate says. But inside me, I know I'm different than what's observable. What's, what is an observable fact about me? If you can't go after one, you can't go after the other. And that really comes from a, uh, that, that sort of standoff puts us all in a position of being postmodernists. And that's not a good place to be. Um, typically, I mean, st- the, the traditional idea of truth is simply this. If I say that Albany is the capital of New York and Albany is in reality the capital of New York, then I'm saying a true thing. It ultimately doesn't matter who I am, what I believe, whether I'm a college professor, a historian, or a third, year, third grader memorizing state capitals. If I, if I make a statement that corresponds with reality, then what I'm saying is true. If you take away that idea of truth, if you take away the correspondence theory of truth, you arrive at something close to the postmodern idea of truth as a negotiation among discourse communities, a power struggle, in effect. If you can get enough people to accept what you believe is true as true, then it becomes true. And that is an incredibly dangerous position. I mean, just it, the obvious things would be like Holocaust denial. If you can convince enough people that the Holocaust didn't happen, then it, it didn't happen. That's what follows from that, um, that idea of truth as a, negoti- a linguistic negotiation among discourse communities. And I don't think collectively we want to go down that road. Mark, this is, um, and actually this session has been Quite linear. We've gone from one thing to another. I want to go a little bit backwards and just ask. Would it work for you if we had a new word for a person born double X and another word for a person born XY and then woman and man were used for how that person chose to identify and to live their lives? So instead of having two words that maybe are stretched rather ungainly, four words. Would that work? I don't think it does because it would, it would take the words man and woman and create a kind of gray area between them that doesn't exist. Uh, I would resist that. Um, to say that there are... Um, people who are masculine women or effeminate men is an observation of reality. It's been 
known in perpetuity, I imagine. But the idea that an effeminate man, if he's so moved, becomes a woman by virtue of this inner conviction, or that a masculine woman becomes a man by virtue of an inner conviction, I think it just dilutes the language. There's a cost to be paid in terms of communication once you start blurring the definitions of words, especially when they're antonyms like man and woman. Um, I just think you lose more than you, more than you gain. Um, and you're really, to my mind, you are, um, you're sort of pacifying people who need to be told the truth. Because I don't think it, it promotes general happiness to live your life in a way that other people are doubting who you are. And you're going to hit those doubts if you are transgender. I have to think more about this. And yeah. I got no, a question am, for you, John. Excuse me yeah. for interrupting. What, what about kids who elect uh, gender affirming care, quote unquote? Uh, at uh, ages of puberty and make uh, irreversible uh, interventions in their uh, bodies uh, on behalf of beliefs that are, if we follow uh, Mark's lead here, uh, demonstrably false. What about that? My gut sense is that we're allowing people to make decisions like that too early. I haven't thought deeply about it because the topic is so disturbing and frightening and doesn't apply to me just yet, but... My sense is that we need to consider that people are not mentally mature until they're about 25. Mm -hmm. And of course, the counter argument is yes, but by then certain things are already irreversible. And I would say, well, maybe that's the way it has to be. That's my gut, yeah. my gut sense of it. Um, and in general, you know, the recreational ease with which one can be called transphobic these days is something I am radically opposed to, yeah. um, as one might predict. But I must admit, once again, I'm the weird one here because I I can't make it's probably because I'm a linguist and I study language change. I can't quite get what's wrong with the fluidity of those terms in our modern times. Um, I want to feel what's wrong wrong with it in your mind, Mark, because I know that you are a rational person. You're making sense. You were concerned about society, but. I feel like there might be something I'm missing about your feeling about how yeah. words are well, supposed to work. The, um, again, I, I think I should, uh, I want to emphasize this. I don't think any person of goodwill denies that transgender people have a full complement of human and civil rights. And you want um, you want them to be able to enjoy the rights enumerated in the preamble to the Declaration. You want them to be able to live their lives in intellectually meaningful and emotionally satisfying ways. Where I take exception, though, is the demand that others buy into a conception of themselves that's belied by reality. Um, but we're supposed to change our sense of what reality is, right? You're supposed to change it in accordance with changes in reality. <laughs> it's, it's a, you have two partners. You have belief and reality. But reality is the senior partner. 
It, and it's the senior partner necessarily because it doesn't adjust to us. We have to adjust to it to say what is true. And um, to go back to the idea of transgenderism, I do think of it as a kind of um, as a kind of mental disorder, as harsh as that sounds. Um, where I don't, I think the um, the natural comparison is with something like schizophrenia. You, if you are talking to a schizophrenic, he will have passionately held convictions about voices that are speaking to him. The question is not um, to say to him, you know, you're wrong to think those are out there. The, the, the issue is more, you wouldn't tell a schizophrenic just because he feels passionately about the voices he hears that those voices really are outside his head. You, what you would want to do, say to a schizophrenic is, look, I understand that you're experiencing this. I understand that it seems as though the voices are outside your head, but those voices don't exist outside your head. They exist inside your head. And to people who are, uh, who are transgendered, I would say to them, look, I think it is absolutely real that you are having these feelings. I think gender dysphoria is a real condition of the psyche. Um, and again, I think you have absolute claims to rights to live your life in ways that you think are meaningful and satisfying, but you are not in reality what you think you are. And the fact that you sincerely think it does not alter that fact. So Mark, what you mean is that, for example, about eight years ago, I was at a thing mm -hmm. and there was somebody who was talking to me at a certain length, um, knew some of my work. This was somebody who was certainly born with a Y chromosome and, you know, needed a bit of a shave and <laughs> was speaking in a voice higher than what would be normal. And I'm sure this person was used to speaking that way, but that is not how their voice would have come out if you woke them up in the middle of the night. <laughs> and um, this person was, yeah, had long hair and was wearing a, a nice summer dress and high heels. And I, this person thought of themselves as a woman. And of course, a part of me, you know, being somebody born in 1965 was thinking, this is a man acting like a woman. I can't help thinking it, but this person thought of themselves as a woman. And I thought my job is to open up my mind to the idea that this person is a woman. Although, yeah, this person shaves, this person, you know, clearly the past is obvious, but this is a woman. You're saying that I should have thought this person on that score needs help. They're a little bit yeah. crazy. This should not be, they should not be left to do this for the rest of their life. Is that what you're, you're saying? The, what I'm saying is that I don't see any evidence, objective evidence, that transgendered people that people suffering from gender dysphoria are noticeably happier with the rest of us nodding in agreement that yes, you are what you say you are just because you say that you are it. But, but um, I'm sorry, excuse me, Mark. Yeah. If mm -hmm. you did see that evidence, if they were in fact happier, how would that overcome your epistemological test that 
you have to line up belief with uh, reality. Reality has the upper hand in that. It wouldn't. Uh, uh, ultimately, you have to, you have a, you, your primary commitment is either to people's feelings or to saying what's true. Um, most of us have a commitment to both. Uh, you know, we want people to feel good and we want to say things that are objectively true. But at a certain point, uh, you're going to hit a you're going to hit a juncture where those two interests are hitting up against each other, and at that point, you're going to have to declare your primary allegiance. It's either to the truth or it's to people's feelings. And if you wanted a, a shorthand way to distinguish the woke from um, everyone else, it would be that the woke's commitment is in those situations um, to to honor people's feelings even if it means embracing falsehood. Although they wouldn't call it falsehood. They would say that the, um, that the sincerity of the beliefs determines the truth of the beliefs. And that's, that to me is just, it's a road you don't want to go down either as an individual or collectively. It leads to the justification of totalitarian movements. If truth is a struggle, then it can just easily be an armed struggle as a peaceful struggle, as a verbal struggle. And that's a bad direction for a society to go. One more question, and maybe, John, it's to you as well. I notice that uh, transgenderism comes after gay rights liberation. Uh, you've got LGB, and then you've got T. And the thing I'm wondering is whether or not the uh, rebellion against convention, which is the liberation of gay people from homophobic suppression, a legitimate, I mean, my son Glenn is a gay man. I'm for the liberation of gay people to live as they would choose to live, et cetera. If it needs to be said. I'm not questioning that in the least. What I'm asking is whether or not there's a political connection between the revulsion at normal normality and conventionality being imposed on people with respect to their sexuality and that same conventional normal quote unquote normal uh conservative socially with a small c uh being imposed upon people with respect to their gender identity uh and i just wonder if you would comment on that the connection between the movements. Yeah, well, it's, it's to anybody who wants okay. to respond, but it, mainly to you since you are a yeah. guest of honor the, here. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I mentioned in the book that I have never understood why LGB and T and the rest of the alphabet are grouped together. Um, and there, there is a, recogni a recognition among many people in the gay community that transgender ideology is not necessarily in alliance with them. For, for To take the obvious example, um, we now, there's a consensus that has emerged, and I think it seems to be a scientific consensus too. It seems to have an objective basis in genetics that homosexuality is heritable uh, to some degree. In any case, there seems to be a genetic basis for it's, it's obvious, yeah. sexuality. Uh, in other words, it's not something chosen. If you believe that a man becomes a woman by the sincere belief that he's a woman, 
then homosexuality is chosen. Um, you, you have to decide to remain what you are by birth or change it and suddenly be engaged in heterosexual relationships. Uh, and by heterosexual, I mean you're now what you claim to be. Therefore, your formerly gay relationship becomes straight. Um, and there's also the, the issue, and this is a much more serious issue, of what, what leads people, what leads children, to go back to Glenn's point earlier, what leads children to decide that they are living in the wrong body, that, they, that there is a mismatch between who they are internally and what their biology is representing? And many times the answer is attraction to the same sex. Um, there's a, a British journalist, Helen Joyce, who's written for The Economist, who's, who's pointed out that many of the people who uh, identify now as transgender, many of the children who identify as transgender, in the past would have just been gay children. But now you're giving many of them the option to change their anatomy so that they are, in effect, not gay. And that is really problematic. It, it, there's problems on the other end, too. Does uh, Andrew Sullivan has, uh, has written about this. Um, he said, does the fact that I prefer a penis to a vagina in my sexual attractions, um, does that make me a bigot if I'm not attracted to transgender people who are called transgender women because they... I'm sorry, does that make me a bigot if I'm not attracted to women who believe themselves men because they lack a penis? Uh, and it's a, I don't know that, that that problem is solvable. Uh, that's why I really do question whether or not L, G, and B, which are sexual orientations, should be matched up with everything that follows T, which are sexual identities. Well, here's my simple-minded response to that. It's political. It's the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. The enemy being cis-heteronormativity. Yeah. And that's what we're against. We who are the QITQIA and we who are the LGBT, LGB. We're against cis-heteronormativity and hence, we find ourselves in the same, uh, you know, alliance. Yeah, I think that's the idea behind intersectionality is just um, everything that represents white supremacy is what we're against. And if that means putting ourselves at odds with um, empirical evidence and Aristotelian logic, so be it. And uh, I just... Don't think that's a good road to go down. To go down collectively, I think we're going to wind up with too many emperor's new clothes moments if we go down that road, and we're going to wind up where our what formerly would have been negotiated in the political sphere will be power struggles negotiated elsewhere from politics. And that's a it's a dark vision. And it's interesting that race issues are often said to be so complicated. And yeah. I, don't, 
I don't really think they are that complicated. I think that we're I just trained to pretend. I mean, compared this, to this. It's, this is complicated. Yeah. These are very rich issues. And I am, I have no patience whatsoever for the person who decides that having the discussion and bringing up these questions is transphobic. That's utterly anti-empirical. It, it makes no sense and it serves no purpose. But I do not see easy answers here. This is very complicated. Mark, you, you want, you're proposing that an awful lot of people are mentally imbalanced. And I don't know where that line is drawn. It's counterintuitive to me, though, because it's so many people. But I don't know where one of the complexities is, where do you draw that line? And history has often presented that, that issue. This is fascinating to me. But I yeah, should say it's, that. It's difficult because you don't want, you know, I don't have a book. I, <laughs> I'm sitting at Linda's house. I do not have a copy of my but book. But we just happen to have one in hand. Yeah, that, this that's book. the book, yeah, everybody. I'm still not crazy about the cover, but yeah, I'll live with it. <laughs> The, um, yeah, it's, you don't want to over-medicalize these situations. You don't want to say transgender people are crazy because they're functional. They're, they're nice they're, and they deserve to live respect. They deserve to be respected in the way they present themselves and the way they identify. It's just asking other people to acknowledge as true what's demonstrably not true is a bridge too far. I have what might be a final question. John's in the chair, but let me let me just ask it quickly. Go ahead, Glenn. Because I know what many will say. They will say that you are a dangerous man, Mark Goldblatt, and that oh, and that your yeah. arguments actually are uh, in, inducing violence. That that the they're they're an assault on the very integrity of the being of people. Uh, they will be used by. Uh, know nothings to, you know, justify their uh, rejection of those people. And I just want to give you an opportunity to yeah. respond to this predictable criticism. Well, if my, if my arguments are used to discriminate against anyone, then the person who's doing the discriminating is misunderstanding the argument I'm making. Um, where I can see a legit concern, I, you know, and, you know, my book, it talks about critical race theory and the Me Too movement as well as transgenderism, where I can see a, a kind of sliver of truth in that what I'm saying is disagreeable would be insofar as it doesn't allow people their own truths. You know, it, if you believe that people should be allowed their own truths, if you, to my mind, you're vitiating the notion of truth if you do that. But if you want to say that it is a natural right for me to believe what I want to believe, and you have no right to correct me or to point out where my error lies, then I'm guilty of that. Um, but I think ultimately, everyone, uh, whether woke or unwoke, is in a better place to respect everybody else if their shared ground is truth. 
if they if there is a reality to which they can compare their claims and decide who's right among them, even if those decisions are always tentative. Um, we're just all better off because it makes it easier for us to get along. It, it just, I, I don't think that the Enlightenment should be seen as a threat to critical race theorists, to uh, women who are involved in the Me Too movement, or to transgender people. It's just the, the Enlightenment, in fact, is the guarantor of their individual rights. Uh, it's just that the Enlightenment carries with it a burden of rational inquiry and socio-religious tolerance that among the woke, I find a reluctance to extend to people who are skeptical of woke positions. And that sorry, is- Sorry, that was rambling, but- No, no, no that, you were right on. That is the case. But these issues are tough. These yeah, are, they are. And that's the thing, we have to- it, there is no reason that we can't discuss them. There is no mm -hmm. reason to suppose that certain questions, because of the possibility of misinterpretation by bad people, should therefore never be aired. Yeah, that, that's a very radical and rather illogical view about anything, any topic at all. And yeah, I would, to go back to Trump, I want to be able to say to Trump supporters, no, you are objectively wrong. He did not win the last election. But in order to do that, I have to refer to reality. I have to refer to something that ex exists independently of people's feelings. But remember that the objection there is that there doesn't seem to be a body of people inclined to violently jump upon you for expressing that view. How dare you say that? We're gonna oh, you're not you're not looking at my Facebook feed. <laughs> and again, I <laughs> am. And so no. <laughs> I take that. Uh, let, let me just underscore yeah. here as we close out that uh, it, this is all about epistemology. It's about knowledge. It's it's about pedagogy, isn't it? And it's about what we teach young people who don't yet have a fully formed consciousness um, about these things, which means that curriculum in schools and the practices, especially in the early grades, around these issues is absolutely central. And you're going to be odd man out in the woke, uh, uh, you know, uh, political sphere uh, if you bring Mark Goldblatt's uh, critical view into <laughs> the classroom. Yeah, I'm not getting too many invitations these days. Yeah, yeah this is a point, though. If mm -hmm. you... Speak the truth, which I believe is the truth, that there's no evidence that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Yes, there are certain people who are going to get mad at you. But what they're mad at you about is not, I'm working this through, what they're mad at you about is not that that's something that people on the left shouldn't hear because they're going to hurt us. They're going to harm us. The argument is you're not supposed to say that because we're supposed to stay in power. That's, that's somewhat different. It isn't, don't say that because the people over on the other side are going to X. You see, see the difference? Yeah, I, I, do see, I do see a distinction there, but that has to do with strategy uh, more so than epistemology. Um, I just like the idea, and I guess you can consider the Enlightenment itself a, a kind of 
religious movement gathered around, uh, in effect, the preamble to the declaration. Um, the, in order to resolve disputes, you need to do so in reference to reality that exists independently of what people believe. Um, and if that reality is not the, the locus for determining what's true and what's not true, then you, you, to my mind anyway, you empower somebody like Donald Trump. Just as much as you empower people on the far left of the political sphere in the United States. Um, every public statement um, and claiming an identity other than what you biologically are is a public statement. Every public statement has to be measured against something. And I, I dread the idea that the public, that public statements would be measured against your power to put them forward. Because I think that leads to a very dark place. Yeah. And I'll just note uh, Mark's distinction between strategy and reality was evidenced in the resolution of the lawsuit that the Dominion voting machine people brought against Fox News, where yeah. we learned that even at Fox News, they know the difference between strategy and reality. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah they, they, that was a shameful episode. Although you can make the case that at least one good thing that came out of it from Fox News' standpoint is that the people who are promulgating these falsehoods are too smart to believe it themselves. That's what I'm saying. I think the... The criticism of MSNBC may be that they actually believe it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought okay. of it that way. We're yeah, going to hear from our friends of, uh, at MSNBC, but that's... Sorry that's okay. about that. Well, we're going to hear from all kinds of people, but... Yeah. <laughs> yes. So let me thank you, Mark, and thank you, John. Uh, thank the you Glenn for Show. having me on. Of course. And uh, we'll see you next week, John and I, in two weeks. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mark.